Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started with our questions and answers tonight. I have eight questions that I received, and uh, we're going to talk through these. And then after we go through these eight questions, if we have time, if I leave time, uh, I can take some follow-up questions from from the floor tonight, things pertaining to the lesson. Um, but let's just jump right in after we say uh, opening word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the opportunity to be together, to learn together. We thank you for the ability to think and to ask questions and we thank you that you are not closed off to our questions but you are there to give us wisdom and insight according to your truth according to your word and we ask that tonight uh, by your holy spirit we would be led into all truth preserved from error and uh, guided closer and closer to the light of the truth that is in jesus christ our lord we ask these things in his name amen so the number one question and i think i don't know you know, what list you would go to about questions concerning heaven where this would not be the number one question. Who thinks they know what it is? Are there, or is my, is my pet in heaven? Is my pet in heaven? Okay, just to, this is one of those, this, this, this is just for fun. Nobody's judging anybody. My answer might surprise you, actually. So just a show of hands, who believes, let's keep it phrased that way, who believes that pets, personal pets, not just a dog or a cat, but personal pets, who believes those will be in heaven? It's okay to say yes. And, and once, once one person raised, they're like, yeah, I do too, yeah. How many are decidedly no? Like, personal, those pets will not be in heaven. Everybody hates y'all, right? <laughs> How many, just honestly, just say, I don't know? You can't answer twice. I'm just kidding. You can't. You can't. You can say, I want that to be true, but, you know, I don't know. That's, that's an okay answer. Let's talk about a few things. Throughout the course of the study, we talked about God making creation good right? That there were things that existed before the fall that were good. Before things were messed up by sin and the curse, God created the earth. God created all the creatures on the earth, birds, fish, things on the land, humans. He made all those things, and at the end of making all those things, he said, what about each one? It is good, it is good. And when he finished, he said, it is very good. It's, it's done, and he rested from his work. He was pleased with what he had made. So, in that order, that created order, that included animals, God said it is good. 
And we've been talking this whole time about how heaven, at least the future heaven, right? Remember, the new earth, the future heaven after the resurrection, will be a redeemed creation, a reconciled, restored, rescued creation. And there will potentially, I think biblically, be animals present. People will obviously be present, trees, oceans, mountains. Uh, It will be a restored creation. Remember, as we know now, but infinitely better because it will be that minus the effects of sin and the fall. Uh, write down Romans 8 and uh, go back. Y'all real quick write that down. We should talk about things you're interested in every week. And <laughs> in Romans 8, remember Paul talks about how all creation is groaning for that day of redemption. All creation, not just humans, not just believers, but all creation is groaning for that day as a woman who is in childbirth, Paul says, longing for that day to be here, for sin to be done away with, for the curse to be defeated, and for Christ to reign in righteousness. Remember, he will reign and reverse the curse far as the curse is found over all creation. So when you look at the Bible, write down Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65. We see these depictions of heaven, Some would say they're pictures of the millennial kingdom. That's fine. Whichever way you you see that, the millennial kingdom or just heaven, uh, the future state, the future heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new earth. Uh, There are animals there. Remember, the uh, lion will lay down with the lamb and the wolf will be there and the the child will put his hand over the den of the snake and won't be harmed. We know there are horses in heaven. Jesus comes back on a white horse along with all the other hosts of heaven, maybe on horses as well. And so all of this is part of the new creation. Now the question is, will my pet be in heaven? And let's talk first of all about the intermediate state. Our poor little cat Isla died back in November. Okay, Isla has died and we are not yet to the day of resurrection. I do not personally believe there's biblical warrant to think that Isla had some spiritual immaterial part of her nothing like that we don't know but the bible tells us god created the earth he created the animals it wasn't until he creates man that he breathes into man his spirit and man becomes a living soul so there's something different about man that exists even beyond death okay so i don't believe that when our pets die or when animals die there is an intermediate state for them Okay, I don't see any biblical reason for that. Our souls go to be with Christ, right? I don't believe animals have those to experience that intermediate state. But as we talked about the resurrection, and the author reminded us that maybe works of art will be restored, things that humans have made, music and art and literature and culture, and he went as far as to say animals and the creation around us will be restored. You know, if on that day of resurrection... When we come out of the ground and we meet Christ in the air as he returns to judge the world and Isla comes up out of the ground too, I'll be fine with that. That'll be fine. I don't see any reason to say that can't happen. He's going to restore everything, right? He's going to redeem everything. And so just as much as I'll know me and I'll know you and you'll know you and you'll know me, maybe there's that hope that we will uh, have not just a cat or a dog, but our dog or our cat, or horse, or duck, or goat, you know, whatever floats your boat. 
That rhymed. Yeah, a whole zoo. Uh, Remember, whatever heaven will be, it will not be less than what is here. It will be what is here, but better. And so I don't have any reason, first of all, animals I think will definitely be present in the new earth. It's just a question about my personal pet. So maybe. So maybe put put your hand in the I don't know, I hope so category. Um, the next question was about weather. Will there be seasons in heaven? Winter, fall, summer, spring, uh, snow, rain. Will there be those kind of things in heaven? Um, look with me at Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34. We could get into all kinds of might be fun to you it's not fun to me we could get into all kinds of stuff about did it rain before the fall did it rain before the flood Uh, or was it as genesis 2 says it was it was it only the dew coming from the ground that watered the plants until the flood and then the, the atmosphere opened and the rain came i don't have the answers to all of that all i can tell you is what we see uh revealed to us in the rest of scripture ezekiel chapter 34 Verses 26 through 27. Let me get there. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 26. This is the Lord's promise of peace to his people. Let's just start in verse 25. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in all the places all around my holy hill a blessing. I will send down the showers in their seasons and they shall be showers of blessings. There's a song there. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of the oak and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. Now, we could go into a long thing about prophecy and uh, that the Old Testament prophets prophesying a, a more immediate deliverance from Babylon or Assyria or Rome or whoever it is. But we know enough about biblical prophecy to know that that's not the end, right? That's a partial fulfillment, but the greater fulfillment is yet to come. And in this picture of God's fulfillment of his covenant in his kingdom of peace and righteousness, we see, at least hinted at, rain. And not just rain, but seasons of growth and watering and harvest. We know there will be work in the new earth right remember er, work was not part of the fall fruitless work was part of the fall and adam laboring under the sweat of his brow for bread and the ground only gives thistles and thorns but work itself was blessed have dominion over all the earth take dominion over all of it and have the animals and have the food and have the earth that's all part of creation and god's good design there's no reason to think that will not part be be part of the new earth Uh, In Job 37, you might just write that down. Part of the works that God mentions that he performs in the world to Job, this is when um, God finally shows up and answers Job's questions, or rather does not answer Job's questions, but asks Job the questions. Some of the stuff that God mentions that he does, he he stores the snow in the clouds and the rain in the clouds. God causes the lightning to flash and the thunder to roll. In these things that God is mentioning to Job, there's no inclination that those things are in and of themselves evil 
or wicked or part of the fall. Lightning, wind, rain, thunder, snow, rain, the clouds. And so if we just take that as a, at face value and say, well, God is saying he does those things. And they're part of his majesty and his glory and who he is. They're a revelation of who he is. You know, when God appears on Mount Sinai, how does he appear? How does he choose to appear in a cloud of thick darkness and lightning and thunder and the sound of water and, and all these images that God uses to represent himself? It seems like those things might be present uh, in the new earth in terms of rain, maybe even storms, thunder, lightning, albeit not destructive. Um, so just judging from those things, and we go to Revelation, we see there is a river and there is a tree of life. That seems to correspond to what Ezekiel saw, that there will be trees and they will yield their fruit in their season. And then we see that very same thing in the Garden of Eden. We see that very same thing in the new earth. Um, again, there's nothing that is here and now that is beautiful and glorious and majestic that will not be in the new earth redeemed and perfected. So well, I don't know what that means for lightning and thunder and rain and snow, but it doesn't seem to me that those things are absolutely part of the fall and will be eradicated in the new earth. What about marriage? We talked about marriage just a little bit. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Uh, and this is an interesting question because the Sadducees who are coming at Jesus in this scenario are that branch of the religious leaders that rejected the idea of a resurrection. And we're going to see here in one of their questions to Jesus, who affirms the resurrection, by the way, Jesus sides with the Pharisees on the point of the resurrection. The Sadducees do not believe that, and they come at Jesus kind of trying to trick him with a trick question about the resurrection. Um, Look at Matthew 22, verse 23. Let's just start reading there. That same day, the Sadducees came to him, who said that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Okay, so in the Old Testament system, you know, the, the kinsman redeemer and the next closest relative could marry the sister so that the name is carried on, so that the family is cared for, so that the children are cared for. And so the Sadducees, trying to trip Jesus up about the resurrection, in a ridiculous scenario, picture seven brothers and one wife who literally just kind of as, as one dies, as one husband dies, she goes to the next, the next, the next, the next, the next, until she's had seven husbands. And then she dies, and, and they say, okay, so in the resurrection, which one is the wife and which one is the husband of all seven brothers and the one wife? In verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, notice Jesus does not say they have become angels in heaven, but they are like the angels in heaven. And how are they like the angels in heaven? Verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
he is not God of the dead, but the God of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What did Jesus say? How are they like the angels? In not marrying nor giving in marriage. They don't become angels, but they are like angels in that way in the resurrection. All right. So, according to the Lord Jesus, whatever the marriage relationship means here on earth, that comes to a fulfillment in heaven and specifically on the day of resurrection. And so according to Jesus, and I have no reason to think Jesus is wrong, <laughs> according to Jesus, that marriage relationship is dissolved in the resurrection. Now, that might come as a shock. It might bother you. I mean, it bothers me to think that. But we have to remind ourselves, again, that whatever we have on this side of eternity is just a taste and a foreshadowing of the joy that we will have in eternity with Christ. This really gets to the question of what marriage is about. Of all the things that we've talked about, that I've said will continue, that will keep going, that will be redeemed, will be restored, I'll still be Matt, Jessica will still be Jessica, you'll still be you, your spouse will still be them. So how do we say there's no marriage? Well, there's something specific about marriage that disappears in eternity because it was always about something else. And you ask, what's that? Well, let's look together at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul begins here in Ephesians 5 verse 22. Talking about the roles of wives and husbands and children in a Christian home. Now, I want you to hear where his argument goes, though, what, it, what it's based on. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, is his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, automatically, right from the get-go, we see a picture, don't we? Wives, submit to your husbands as, as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, even as what? Christ is the head of his church. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, there's that picture again. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, now, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's the picture again. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. There's the picture again. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting Genesis 2, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul's talking about marriage, the covenant of marriage. And he keeps reminding us this is about Christ and his church, Christ and his church. In verse 32, Paul comes right out and says it very clearly. This mystery is profound. What mystery? The mystery of marriage. The mystery of the one flesh union between a husband and his wife. This mystery is profound. Look what he says. And I am saying that it refers to, it points to, 
Christ and the church. So it's not that marriage just reminds us of Christ and his church. And it's not that Christ and his church are kind of like a picture of marriage. But marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And Paul says that is what marriage. I am saying that it's about this. And when you come to Revelation, how does John describe the holy city coming out of heaven? What does he say? Like a bride adorned for her groom. A bride adorned for her husband. How does Revelation end? The spirit and the bride say, come. So there's something about eternity, something about the resurrection, when the picture of marriage, that which it refers to, is done away with. And the fulfillment comes. Just as we would think of any old covenant law or type or symbol that is fulfilled in Christ, marriage likewise is fulfilled in the day of resurrection. And it's not, again, like you're not you and your spouse isn't them anymore. No, we will forever be who we are, redeemed, restored, reconciled in heaven forever. But that relationship doesn't need to be there anymore because the fulfillment has come. Okay? Questions? Hold on to the end. <laughs> Next question. Who are the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4? So if you remember the scene in heaven, John sees the throne. And uh, aside from all the other weird things, the four living creatures and all the other stuff he sees, the emerald and the, the rainbow around the throne, he sees 24 thrones. And seated on those 24 thrones are 24 elders. And we were talking about this as a staff today, and I said, I think at least 12 of them are the 12 apostles, okay? And this is speculation. The Bible doesn't say, uh, God doesn't see the need to reveal that to John. He just sees 24 thrones and 24 elders, uh, but there's some significance to them, and I'll tell you why. At least the 12 apostles, and we were kind of joking about whether it would be Matthias or Paul, <laughs> whether Matthias was a placeholder for Paul. We know that there are 12 apostles, and I'll get to that in just a second. Um, the other 12, some would say maybe the 12, uh, 12 of the larger major prophets in the Old Testament. Some would say just 12 uh, prominent prophets from the Old Testament. So take your pick, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, whoever, however you get to 12. Um, some would say maybe the 12 tribes, the 12 fathers of Israel are 12 of them, 12 apostles, 12 prophets whatever i'm going to show you why i think it's some mixture of the apostles and the prophets um, look at ephesians chapter 2 ephesians chapter 2 if you're already in five just flip back a couple pages to ephesians 2 while you're turning to ephesians think about the transfiguration and Jesus appearing on the mountain, remember, to Peter, James, and John. He's transfigured. His appearance changes. He, his glory is revealed, and they see him shining like the sun with clothes as white as lightning. And who's standing there next to Jesus? Moses and Elijah, right? And most scholars agree they are standing there representing the, the law and the prophets, both bearing witness to Jesus, Okay, and Jesus always uses that kind of language about himself, the law and the prophets. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. And then there on the Transfiguration Mountain is 
the, the personification of the law and the prophets in Moses and Elijah. Okay? And so uh, th- that's interesting to me. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Um, start with verse 20. No, 19. Ephesians 2, 19. Paul talking about the unity of the church, that there's no longer a division between Jew and Gentile, Greek or slave, uh, all those, or slave or free, Greek or, or, or Gentile, whatever. Uh, <laughs> there's no longer those divisions where one new person in Christ, one new man. Look at how he completes this picture in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, what is he talking about? The body of Christ, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile through the blood of Christ, no longer two people, but one through the, through the blood of Jesus. That's you, the household of God, the church. The verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Now, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. We affirm that, but there's more to it than just that. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundational stone but Paul says here that the foundation of the church, with the cornerstone being Jesus, is the prophets and the apostles. That they form the foundation of who we are as God is building a temple and a house for himself, which is us. That's interesting. And now go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, and they'll see something tie this together in the new heaven and the new earth. Remember what Paul said, one new man, one household, the foundation being the apostles and the prophets. Revelation 21, let's start in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the wrath, uh, full of seven last plagues, and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. There's that imagery being fulfilled now and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god having the glory of god its radiance like most rare jewel like jasper clear as crystal it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of israel were inscribed and on the east three gates, on the north three gates, and the south three gates, and the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, you could argue with context. We're in the same book of Revelation. We're seeing the same imagery. 12 tribes, 12 sons, and 12 apostles. Maybe those are the 24 elders. Either way, we see these figures featured prominently not just in the old testament but in the writing of the new testament with paul saying the, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church and then even as we see the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven we see 12 names inscribed on the gates the 12 tribes of israel and the 12 apostles inscribed on the foundation of the holy city so again this is one of those things we can speculate about it's fun to see sort of the 
evidence that maybe points us to an answer. But at the end of the day, God did not reveal that to John. He did not reveal it to me. It's still a mystery who those 24 elders are. But it's at least interesting to see these numbers, 12, 12, 24, pop up time and time again, especially in regards to the foundation of the church on the the apostles and the prophets. Another question I received was about um, the kingdom of heaven and the new Jerusalem. There's um, sort of a theory out there that when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God, it won't actually be on earth. Has anybody heard this before? That the, the new Jerusalem will come down, but it will not come all the way down. And so what you have left with, and this is not my terminology, this has been used, I've heard this before, uh, what you have with the New Jerusalem is sort of this satellite kingdom that hovers over the new earth, okay? Uh, I don't see any biblical warrant for that. The, the only place you might can go is maybe there in Revelation 21, where, sure, it says, I saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and it doesn't exactly say that it lands or where it lands <laughs> or where it goes. So, I mean, a, it's an argument from silence at best. There's just no way to really read the rest of the chapter and see that as some sort of almost coming down but hanging out there in the clouds. And then you get into some weird stuff uh, with some theologians about um, only, only Jews go to the New Jerusalem while Gentile Christians reign on the earth. And, and that really, I mean, honestly, if you want to know where that comes from, it comes from Adventist theology. And Adventist theology is what gave us Seventh-day Adventists. It's what gave us the Jehovah's Witnesses. So when you talk to a Jehovah's Witness and you ask about heaven, they're very clear that uh, not a lot of people are going to heaven. Because what they mean by that is that hovering satellite New Jerusalem will be up there. That's heaven. And only 144,000 will be chosen to go reign with Jehovah there. But the rest of us will be here on paradise earth, okay, a remade earth. So similar to what we believe about the new earth, actually just minus the new Jerusalem and (laughs) the presence of God. So (laughs) there's a big hole there. But you see, some of that stuff just leads you down to some weird paths. There's no reason to think that there are different quarters of heaven, different levels of heaven, uh, this hovering thing and the earth thing and all that is just is pure speculation. Again, that's one of those things that might be fun to talk about in a small study group or maybe just in your own head and never tell anybody else. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not good, I don't think, to be dogmatic about that kind of thing because, again, there's just no biblical evidence to say for certain, no, this is what it is. So I, I don't see any biblical warrant for that. Another interesting question, interesting thoughts here. Um, Will we have free will in heaven? And uh, the, the, the understanding of free will, and I would assume what we mean by that question is, um, if we're in heaven, will we be able to sin? You know, will, we, will we just be a robot sin that are unable to sin? This really gets us to an understanding of what we mean by ability, doesn't it? When we're talking about free will, we're talking about ability, the ability to do good, the ability to do evil. If you remember a sermon I preached last, I know you do, last uh, May, <laughs> a little short series called Matchless. I did, a, I did a sermon called God Can't, 
And there will there's several things I reminded us uh, theologically that God cannot do. Because remember, we, we like to say God can do everything. God can do anything. And what we mean by that is that he's all-powerful and nothing is beyond his, his control and his ability. So it sounds sort of counterintuitive for us to then say God can't something. But once we started listing those, everyone, I think, agreed. God can't sin. God can't lie. God can't learn. God can't grow. God can't change. Those are things God can't do. And when we think about the word can't and God can't do something, it strikes us as odd because we seem to think that those things are abilities. That God can't lie is somehow limiting God's ability to say what he wants. Or to say God can't sin is somehow limiting God's power to do what he wants. Or that God can't change, learn, grow, uh, whatever it is that he can't do. When in reality, we, don't, we need to recalibrate what we think about sin and ability. Because to lie or to sin or to change or to grow or learn doesn't insinuate ability, does it? It insinuates inability. The inability to be righteous. The inability to be honest. Think about change. If we're saying that God could change, it means he must be something else and he must become something else. So there must be something lacking in God that he must then change to overcome or be or whatever. Or if he has to learn things or he has to grow in his knowledge, there must be some deficiency in God that he has to overcome by acquiring more knowledge. So you see, those things that God can't do are not limitations on his ability, but we are proclaiming his absolute power and ability because he can't change, he can't sin, he can't lie. The same thing, I think, is going to be true of us in eternity. In our glorified bodies in the resurrection, we will have the inability, if we want to phrase it that way, to sin. The inability to deteriorate or to lie or to be tempted. First of all, Satan is gone. He's thrown into the lake of fire with every other unbeliever. He's tormented day and night for the rest of eternity. And so we have that. There's no Satan, no tempter as there was in the garden even. But even then, what we are and what we will be will be like who? First John 3. We will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is. And so to be like Christ, to be like God in that sense, means that we have the ability then never to sin again. We have the inability to sin ever again because it was never ability in the first place. Neither is lying or growing or changing or dying. Okay, those are things we cannot do in eternity. So when we talk about free will, I don't think we're just going to be mindless, you know, robots for eternity. Ne neither are we now, even though our wills are in bondage to sin now. In eternity, our wills will be completely free and completely unburdened by sin and the fall and the curse of sin. There will be no Satan, only the pure, perfect presence of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, his son. And so our wills will perpetually and eternally be fixed on him and serving him so in one sense yes we will retain our 
free moral ability in terms of uh, not being you know, robots on a string somehow. But on the other side, what we mean by free will, we must, we must define carefully because we will not be able to sin or lie or grow weary or die or be sick or things like that. Another question was, you know, when we see the New Jerusalem, and I just read part of this there, and there's more, we see uh, streets of gold and jasper walls and gates of pearl and a throne that looks like emerald and a crystal sea. Uh, are those literal? Is it literal streets of gold, literal walls of jasper? Um, well, it's interesting to read the language. Uh, let's go down to Revelation 21. Mm. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, I don't know what kind of jasper and what kind of gold looks like clear glass. As far as I know, the most refined gold, the most refined jasper, uh, cleaned up, polished up, is not translucent. Right? It's not transparent. It's not uh, what it says here about clear glass. So, what John is seeing and what he's relating is within the scope of his language, okay? What he sees is too glorious for him to describe. So he has to use this kind of imagery. Uh, again, in verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third gate, and the fourth uh, emerald, the fifth, or sorry, the third ag agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were the twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the city of the street was pure gold, like, again, transparent glass. So, again, it's the new earth, it's a new creation, it's redeemed what we have now. So there is such a thing as gold in the new earth. There is such a thing as emerald and pearl and topaz and all the other emeralds and, and I'm sorry, all the other stones that we see there. Those things exist. So if God so chooses to construct the new Jerusalem out of those materials, redeemed, restored, uh, new, coming out of heaven, I mean, maybe that's fine. It seems like John might be having to grasp for pictures and words that makes sense of what he's seeing. So I, I guess I'd be somewhere in between, yes, it's literal, and no, it's figurative. I don't think I'd land either way and say, no, it's this, or yes, it's this. Whatever it is will be glorious, and John describes it to us in this way. So if he says, if I can put words to it, here's what it looked like, even though no words can describe it. Uh, the last question I have recorded is, uh, will we sleep in heaven will we sleep in heaven well that might go along with the question of whether we will eat or drink in heaven and there's plenty of evidence in the old testament and the new testament that we will eat and drink in heaven and it will be a place of plenty and abundance and all those pictures we see of the promised land remember are, are not less in heaven but are more so land flowing with milk and honey and fields and trees and fruit and all the marriage, whatever the marriage supper of the lamb is, I'm sure it'll be fantastic. So there's going to be food and drink and eating in heaven. But we will not be eating or drinking out of the necessity to stay alive or out of the necessity to get more energy 
because our bodies are wearing down and we need calories to keep going and that that system isn't there in the new earth. But there will be eating and drinking for the sheer pleasure of it. It seems to glorify God. So I've taken many a nap to the glory of God. And I, <laughs> and I lay down in my bed every night. You can ask Jessica, what do I say? Thank you, Jesus. So as soon as my feet hit those sheets, thank you, Jesus. And maybe not waking up the next morning, but we praise God for the gift of sleep and rest. So it's one of those things like, who knows? Yeah, I don't, Sleep isn't necessarily part of the fall. It isn't necessarily part of the curse. Rest certainly isn't part of the curse. Uh, there's exhaustion and stress and anxiety and that kind of tiredness, mental exhaustion, physical exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, those are part of the fall. And so in that way, it necessitates sleep and rest to keep living and surviving and be in our right minds, right? Like eating and drinking. But if we say eating and drinking will be in the new earth, though not for the same reasons, who knows? Maybe sleep will be in the new earth. I, I for one, hope it is. And I think you'll just wake up after a wonderful sleep in, in glory and feel just like you're supposed to feel every morning. I've never once in my life woken up from any sleeping and felt just really, really good. Does anybody really experience that? No. I, and they say, well, if you sleep for seven hours, eight hours, and whatever, turn off all the TV. I can't turn off the TV. Or have white noise and all this stuff, and you wake up feeling refreshed and ready to go. And it's, I've never done anything. If I went to bed before 2 o'clock, it might help. But I've never done anything or slept anywhere where I just woke up feeling just fantastic. But in heaven... Maybe I will. <laughs> I'll go to sleep in some nice cool sheets saying, thank you, Jesus, and I'll wake up bright and refreshed and ready to go do whatever the next thing is in God's new earth. So those are the questions that I had. I wonder if I can uh, clarify anything or, or explain anything further that we talked about tonight. And, and maybe even if you have a question I didn't get to that you can ask. I can't promise an answer, but I can promise an attempt, and maybe I'll get back to you later. So. Any follow-up information or questions about anything I covered? Yes. Yeah, well, Judas uh, loses his status as an apostle. Um, and really, really, Jesus sends out a lot of apostles. And, and that's all the word means is a sent out one. And so Jesus sends out some disciples, uh, but he chooses 12 to be the 12 apostles. Now, Judas betrays Jesus, shows that was part of God's plan all along. You were a lot, you know, he was, uh, the devil was in him from the beginning, and he is, he's removed. So when we come to the book of Acts, Acts 1, that is the dilemma. There's 11 of us. They remember we need 12 of us, you know, for whatever reason, we need 12. And so, <laughs> and there's lots of interesting talk here about whether they should have done this or not, but they literally roll some dice <laughs> between two guys. I think one's name was Justice and the other one's Matthias, and, and they chose Matthias. The lots chose, by the will of God, you know, chose Matthias. Some scholars believe what they did was improper, 
and Matthias was an invalid apostle. doesn't say that. There's no reason to think that, but that's what they say. And then Paul actually was meant to be the 12th apostle. Some say, well, Matthias was appropriately chosen, but was holding the place till Paul, God's chosen 12th apostle. However we get to the number 12, because Paul is an apostle, however we get to the number 12, there's 12 foundation stones and there's 12 names on them. I probably believe that Matthias won't be one of them and Paul will be one. But that's just Brother Matt, not Pastor Matt. Does that answer your question? Get there? <laughs> everybody hear that <laughs> Harlan's takeaway was that I, I said that God is going to give you me a better relationship with my cat than, than his wife <laughs> I don't think that would be the way to word it because my relationship with my cat was not marriage <laughs> and so that Whatever restoration of relationship there may or may not be between my family and little Isla, I don't know. Yes, there are. Yeah, and we find that out. That's right, and we will have differences on. A lot of Christians have a lot of difference. In this room, there's, what, 40-something of us, and, and there are 40 different opinions on, on lesser issues. And you're right, there are absolutes. We, we, we stand on the, the primary things. If you all remember the theological triage thing, we, we stand together on the primaries, who God is, who Christ is, what the gospel is, what the scripture, what salvation is, heaven and hell. Uh, these areas, to your point, are areas of debate and disagreement. Um, I, don't, I don't, and that's the thing about the marriage thing. I don't know, everybody might have questions about the marriage thing. The marriage thing as difficult as it is to, to, to think through that there will not be marriage relationship in the new heaven and the new earth. As, as difficult as that is to think about, whatever that is, <laughs> is not less than what we have here. It is not obliterated and replaced. It is fulfilled. And so when we see Jesus and we are brought to him and presented to the Father at last as his spotless, pure bride, then that picture we had of marriage here on earth is no longer necessary because the fullness has come. So I wouldn't word it to say that there's a less of a relationship between me and my wife in the new heaven and new earth, but that relationship is fulfilled and in whatever, however, however, whatever this means, it is perfected in the relationship between Christ and his church.
and eternity. Anything else on what we talked about tonight? Anything I can clarify, go further about? I don't know about fish and turtles. I mean, I guess they'll be there. God, God will raise a goldfish out from the toilet and give it <laughs> put them in a little bowl for you. I don't know. Anybody just have a beloved fish that died? Nobody has a beloved fish. Dogs and cats and cows and stuff are one thing, but fish die, and we flush them literally down the toilet. So. <laughs> Yeah, and, and we read that in Ezekiel, too, about the wild beast being removed from the kingdom. And again, you know, is that literal? Is it figurative? Uh, we'll talk about that later. Any, any other questions? Any other questions about what I covered? Yes. Oh, yeah, go ahead. New, new material from the floor. Oh, good. Yes. There's a lot, a lot of. Yeah. That's true, and this would take a lot of new nuancing down the line here to try to get to any anything close to an answer. The new earth will be the same new earth for everybody. The new Jerusalem will be the same new Jerusalem for everybody. And, and that eternity and that generalized place will be the same. But it is a new earth, remember? And the earth that we experience now, and we talked about this a few times, whereas Pastor Matt, other back there, enjoys being outside for some reason, and t uh, camping and mountains and woods and creeks and hunting and stuff. And, that, and, I, and a lot of people really enjoy that. I prefer a nice sandy beach with palm trees and the water to drink uh, <laughs> and bath bombs. Yeah, I, I enjoy those things. And so, how do you know this? And so in, <laughs> in the new earth, just as much as, Iris, you have things in this earth and in this world and in your life that you enjoyed, and your friend has different things, again, there's, there's no reason to think that those different things won't be there. You see? Because just as much as you enjoy things about this creation and this life now, and she enjoys different things, even though we will inhabit the same new earth, it will be just as different and just as distinct, more so, than it is now. And so whatever she enjoys, whatever you enjoy. You know, when I was little, and I used to ask uh, my parents, will there be a Disney World in heaven? And my mom would just kind of soothe me by saying, whatever you want to be there, we'll be there. And I don't know if that's true. I don't doubt there'll be Disney World in heaven. But whatever there is in heaven in the middle of Florida, because Florida will be there, um, will be redeemed and restored and renewed for all eternity. It'll be w way better than anything we experienced here. So there will be the same experience, but there will still be unique and different experiences because we will still be uniquely us in a redeemed way. Remember, we'll, we'll be even more uniquely us than we are now, and so will the experience.
<laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. I believe that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amen. Uh, got time for maybe one more new question. Anything for just new, not maybe uh, something I talked about tonight. All right. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Uh, I want to remind you that next week we start the new study in Jesus' final week. It'll be a six-week study through the final eight days of Jesus' life, so a week plus a day, uh, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. So there are some, I see some people have got books already. That's great. There are eight more here. Um, come grab them if you want to leave money on the table. They're 15 apiece, not 35 but $15 a piece. They'll be here. You can leave your money there or grab one, bring the money to the office. Just as long as, you know, honor system, you bring your money to the office, $15. For the bi- or pay online, exactly, and let Kim know what that's for. Okay, so there are eight books here. If they're gone by the time you get here and you need one, just come let me know, and I'll be glad to order some more uh, before we, and they'll be here by next week. Okay? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the gift of heaven. Thank you for providing a way for us to be there with you uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and bled and rose again so that we might live with you in him and the Holy Spirit, world without end, forever and ever. God, we thank you for the gospel that gives us hope even in the midst of death and despair and suffering because we have something and we have some place and someone that we're looking forward to. God, thank you for reminding us through this study of the goodness and the joy and the pleasures that you have prepared for those who love you. And help us on this side of eternity to live with heaven in mind, with heaven in our focus. Help us to keep our eyes set on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory and we will indeed forever be with the Lord. Thank you for that promise, and thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel and the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 We'll see you next time.